Hello, everybody. It's good to see you once again. It's good to be together. For those of you who are able to be together with us, it's good to have you online. For those of you who uh, are online with us, we are grateful that you are keeping yourselves safe. Uh, it's been a rough week. I appreciated the prayer uh, that our elder Larry prayed for us. It's been a rough week. I've been uh, so many things in the news that have hurt us and disappointed us and uh, caused us to cry and caused us to question. And I wanted to go back and begin to look at some of the foundations of the hope that we have. Because there are times when it's tough to hope. I'm going to start at the very beginning. One God. If you ask Christians, what is, if you had one verse out of the entire New Testament to summarize what the whole Christian gospel is about, what would, what would the answer be? Sometimes you see it uh, in signs at uh, football games. What one verse? You can tell me, it's okay. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? That's the, that's the gospel in a nutshell. There is a verse, or it's two verses, like that for the whole Old Testament, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. We had read for us this morning in that last section that uh, Tony read. Uh, pious Jews in Jesus' day would literally make leather boxes that they could strap to their foreheads that would have this verse in it. Or strapped to their arms that would have this verse in it. Or, or, or actually make, and to this day actually Jews will do this, make a little miniature shrine tacked to the doorframe of their house that would have this verse and maybe a few other verses in it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the foundation stone on which God's covenant with Israel was built. The most important command. All the other commands are structured around it that have to do with our relationship with God. And, and when somebody asked Jesus, is there a greatest command? He said, that's the one. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Why just one God? Seems like if you're getting gods, having more is better. Then they could specialize. You could have a god for 
love and you could have a God for money and you could have a God for when you want justice. You could have a God for when you want to go to war and you could have another God for when you go to peace. That Actually, the Romans had that. Uh, they actually could set that up just that way. Uh, God's for fertility and God's for good sailing and God's, you know, why not? Let the gods specialize. Then you know who to pray for and who to pray to whenever you've got specific things that are going on. Why one God? Why does God say one? Well, there's a bunch of different ways to answer that question, and I am not going to go through all of them today. I will say this. This is actually not really a problem for the people who believe in Empirically, the has kind of spoken. Um, the best available surveying the says that the idea of one God is by far the most popular view of how the universe fits together. By far. It's not even a close contest. Now we uh, it's actually illegal to ask people to ask questions about what's going on religiously in China, so we cannot get decent data there. But if you exclude China, 41%, according to Gallup and some surveys that Baylor University has done, 41% of the people outside of China, who, when they're asked, what religion are you, will answer some flavor of Christianity. And 27%, will answer some flavor of Islam. So just those two together, and there are a lot of Hindus who are actually believing in one God uh, rather than many. And so if you just put Muslims and Christians together, you've got 68% of the human race who say, how many gods are there? One God. And you can't just wave your hands over that and say, well, yeah, but that's the people are raised that way. They were taught that by their parents, and people just don't even think about it. You know, Christianity started out with 12 people. And it has spread over the world till right now, 40% of the people outside of China, at least, 41%, believe it. So you can't just say, well, just people just continue believing whatever they were taught. That's not what happened. Something about the one God idea is enormously satisfying to human beings. When Deuteronomy says, how many gods are there? One. It's not just talking from God's point of view. It's also talking about what you are like. Human beings deep in our hearts this satisfies us. One God makes sense to us. We want there to be one God. We're confused, I think, by the word God because God means a lot of different things in English. Uh, you know, there is a Marvel comic book character that's called a God, Thor. And all it means for him is he's really powerful and he's from a planet or plane or, I don't know, golden city called Asgard. I don't know what that actually means. but just In that context, God just means 
kind of like us, but super powerful, with extra powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. You know, it's that kind of a thing. God just means having a lot of power. And in the Roman world and the Greek world, human beings who got really, really powerful could kind of make the transition over to being called gods. So Julius Caesar, when he dies, they don't even wait till he's cold. They, they make him a god and they start worshiping him. So God just kind of means powerful. In some people's minds, that's all there is to being a god. And so, of course, there are many, 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 because there's lots of kinds of power out there and lots of powerful people out there and lots of powerful entities out there. When the Bible says there's one, it's not talking about just power. It's talking about something else. Elsewhere in Scripture, in fact, one of the refrains in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, God, the maker of heaven, and earth. We're talking about the one God of Scripture. We are talking not about a God, just a powerful being. Certainly, God is powerful, but we're talking about the creator of everything else. The one that made all things around us. In fact, this is a tell. This is how you can figure out when somebody's talking, using the term God just to mean super powerful being as opposed to God the way the Bible tends to use it, creator of everything else. Does the being that somebody's talking about have an origin story? Do, can you tell a story about where that being came from? How did Thor get to be Thor? He picked up the hammer. And then for a while he lost it because he was bad, and then he got to pick it up again, and he gets to be Thor again. Right? We have an origin story for Thor. Turns out we have an origin story for Jupiter or Zeus. You know, how did he get to be Zeus? Well, he, he, you know, he had a fight with his dad and some other titans, and, and that's how he gets to be the supreme god. And we have origin stories for most of the gods that are just power beings. Where's the origin story for the God of the Bible? Everybody turn in your Bible to the origin story for God. Nobody's turning, why not? Because it's not in there. Because there is none. What does the Bible say about God? He always was. He always will be. That, the mountains will wear out. And you will still be there. The, the Bible doesn't even try to give an origin story. And all the gods around, they had all these elaborate family. I mean, for the chief Babylonian god, Marduk, you actually know who his parents are, grandparents are, great-grandparents are. When you know his whole family history... So all the cultures around were telling their origin stories for the gods that they worship. The Bible doesn't bother because God is the creator. He's the answer to all those questions, where did stuff come from? That's him. They all came from him. If God were the kind of thing that could come from something else, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the God that the Bible's talking about, the creator of heaven and earth. 
There are lots of reasons why this God, the one God, calls out to us. Probably the strongest is that our sense of what's right and wrong is actually the voice of this God speaking to us. If there were many gods, there's a God or goddess of love and there's a God and goddess of money or there's a God and goddess of war and a God and goddess of peace, a, you know, a God of you know, planting and a God of harvesting, then my morality should be as chaotic as that. It should pull me in all those different directions. But my morality's not like that. I don't live up to my moral sense very often. I, I betray it a lot. And yet, it is this constant voice in the back of my head that says, you do the right thing. And it's so weird because it says, you do the right thing, even if nobody's watching. Even if nobody's going to pat you on the back afterward. In fact, you do the right thing even if people are going to yell at you afterwards for what you did. That's what we want out of our moral sense. Even to do the right thing, you do the right thing. We want our grocery stores to sell us healthy food, even if it cuts into their profit margin. We want our policemen to be willing to face danger on our behalf, even if that means their life expectancy may be shortened, which, by the way, it is. Same thing for firefighters. Same thing for the soldiers we send to fight our wars. We want them to do the right thing, even when it costs them. We want our politicians and our newspapers and our teachers to tell us the truth, even when it's unpopular. That's what we want. They don't always do it, we know that, but that's what we want. It's almost like, even when no one's watching, we feel like someone's watching. Even when we feel like there's someone there to whom we need to give an account when there's literally no one around us to whom we need to give an account. And when I do something and it's just me alone, I feel like I've let somebody down. Even though literally no one else knows. I'm telling you. There's tons of ways to explain what's going on with our morality. None of them make nearly as much sense as what most people have said, which is God. One God. One God to whom you answer. One God who will, in fact, hold you accountable. One God who loves you way more than you love yourself. One God who wants you to be what he created you to be and who is working in your life to bring the best out of you. And when you deviate from what's right, you slow up or even derail his plans. That's what makes sense of what's going on in our hearts. Our moral voice, our moral sense really is the voice of God. One God. 
God is so great if there is just this one God that Deuteronomy is talking about. He is so incredible. How could we ever reach him? That's the other attraction, I think, of idolatry is, uh, you know, these gods seem a little more accessible. They're more our size. Zeus is really powerful, but he's kind of like us. Kind of a guy you could hang out with, you know. How do we get to the God who is literally the creator of everything around us? I'm trying to think about God, and yet when I'm in the middle of thinking, the brain I'm using to think about God is created by God. And the air I'm breathing to keep my brain alive is also created by God, and the glucose that my brain is burning as I'm thinking about God is also given to me. How do I, do, how do I get to that God? How do I, can I build a logical ramp? Can I create an evidential tower that's high enough to get me there? The answer is no. We can't do it. Human beings can't get to the one God that Deuteronomy is talking about. To the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ. We can't get there. And Deuteronomy tells you that tells you the solution to that problem. Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 through 36. For I ask you now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created humans on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing like this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire? as you have heard and still live. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by the great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven... He let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. God is truly always forever beyond the reach of human beings. And if he does nothing, we are just left orphaned. But God graciously has come for us. The good news of the Old Testament, the the Old Testament gospel, centers around that fact God came for us. When we were helpless slaves in Egypt, God came to the rescue. And it's on that good news of the Old Testament that the greater good news of the New Testament is built. When all of us were enslaved in sin and darkness and confusion, God came to break us out through the mighty works of Jesus Christ. God came. He didn't leave us stuck in the muck and mire and confusion and doubt. He came and he spoke and he helped and he continues to be coming to us in our lives. 
That's the God, the one God that we serve. Why is idolatry so bad? What's wrong with making a picture? It's so hard to think of God as invisible. I can't see him, I can't taste him, I can't touch him, I can't feel him. I, I, you know, I, I, need, I need to look at things, I need to feel things, I need to, I need to have my senses stimulated. How, how is an invisible God different from no God at all? I want something that I can look at and get my hands on. What's so wrong about idolatry? Deuteronomy gives you an answer. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 and following. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the water or under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. Why is idolatry wrong? Making an image for myself of what God is like. Why is that so bad? The Deuteronomy answer is the same answer we would give. There are others, but God is the maker of heaven and earth. And therefore, he, he's not like anything in heaven and earth. It is hard to imagine something more powerful and glorious than the sun. I can't even look at it at noon. And at sunrise and sunset, I will just suddenly catch a glimpse of the light show it's putting on through the Oklahoma clouds and dust. And I just like, I can't believe anything is that beautiful. And I understand why many cultures have been drawn to sun worship. The moon is almost as glorious. You catch glimpses of it rising and setting in the middle of the night, crescent, waning, waxing, full, new. And you just say, that is a power that is worthy of my life. You see the beauty of the human form, male and female, enormous admiration, Enormous desire even. And you say, that's divine. That's worthy of what's best in me because it is best. And Deuteronomy comes back to you and says, all these things are wonderful as you think they are. And they have a maker. The maker of heaven and earth. So if the sun is as wonderful as you think it is, and the moon is as wonderful as you think it is, and the human body is as wonderful as you think it is, and lions are incredibly powerful, and alligators are incredibly powerful, and whales are, and, and, and all of these other things that people have been drawn to worship and admire, and these things are as incredibly wonderful as they appear to be, all of that gives you just a, a taste, an appetizer 
of what the one God is like, the creator of all of these things. And you see, if you say, I'm going to dedicate everything to this one part of creation, you're giving up the whole for a small part. And that's what's wrong with idolatry. God is not like any part of creation. He is the source of the good and glorious and magnificent of all of creation. And don't settle for second best, third best, fourth best. Seek the creator of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 16. It is the Lord your God you should fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of your people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your mind is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. Place of testing. Why is God jealous? Why is God jealous? Does God get his feelings hurt if we worship other gods? Is he up there, you know, kind of crying and, 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 and writing, you know, depressing poetry and, I don't know, listening to dark music? What, does, does it hurt God's feelings when we worship other gods? I have news for you. What hurts God is you hurting yourself and you hurting other people. You're a human being. God created you. He created all of you, everything about you. And you don't have any power that can actually injure God. Sorry to break it to you. That's the human condition. God's our creator. We're not God. We aren't even close to rivaling God. You can't do anything that actually could damage God. He's not jealous in the way you and I can be jealous. And so when it says God is jealous, what, what bothers God, what I can do that will bother God is to damage myself or damage you. And idolatry and worshiping other gods, lesser beings, damages me and has the potential to damage you. That's why God's jealous. He knows the harm that I'm doing to myself and to others. I can't have two masters. I can't say, oh God, I worship you, but I also have this other thing that I'm pursuing in my life. This other God, Baal. I got neighbors who really like Baal. And equally, I can't say, I really like you, God, but you know, I think equally important is money. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. This is the real reason why multiple gods eventually breaks down. 
One day I go over here and I'm worshiping the goddess of wisdom and I'm saying, oh, you are the wisest and you are the greatest and you are the brightest. And the next day, it's time to go over and worship the goddess, the god of strength. And I say, you are the greatest and you are the strongest and you are the best. And, and even my own brain can't make sense of that. One God, the creator of heaven and earth, says that whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, I can think on these things because I know they come from one source. This is so important for us today. This is not an exercise in ancient theology at all. Brothers and sisters, if there's no God, then all bets are off. Whatever you think is valuable can become God for you. Over here, I'm probably walking out of the camera. Can you hear me? I thought I had this on. Over here, is the temple of truth. And I worship truth and I want truth. I want to find out what's true, but I don't have a God other than truth. And so love, justice, beauty, I may willingly bring those things and sacrifice them. Getting what I think is valuable truth. Money. Here's my temple of money. And money will save me. And money will cause me to be admired. And money will, will all those people who thought I was a loser in high school, they'll finally realize. And, and money is my God. And if I don't have a God higher than that, then I take love of my family and I bring it to the altar. And I say, I'd like to spend time with you, but you got to go. I need your blood for my God. And, and I bring truth. I'd like to be honest, but if I'm totally honest, my business is going to fail. I'm not going to get the promotion. And so I got to slaughter truth. Here's my temple of beauty. I love beauty. I love it. I want more of it. It's worth it to me. Could be artistic beauty, could be sexual beauty, could be any number, whatever it is that I'm pursuing. This is my temple. And I love it so much. If I don't have the one God, then everything else goes. I will slaughter my family for the sake of my love of beauty. I will sacrifice truth and justice. Other people, lesser people, in my opinion, can just go for the sake of beauty. Over here is my temple of war. 
What is more glorious than victory in war? And if I don't have a God, then nothing is. And so again, lying to gain victory, sacrificing killing innocents to gain victory, any kind of abomination to achieve victory, they all get laid on the altar of my false God. Do you understand why? Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and mind, with all your strength. This is who we are. This is what we believe. God, the maker of heaven and earth, has come to us to claim us as his own people and to use us to drive back the darkness and filth and to bring more people into the light. If you need to respond to the invitation of the one God, if you need to ask for prayers for help from the one true God, if you need... Uh, cleansing from your sins in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of the one true God. By the waters of baptism, if there's anything that we can help you with, why don't you come as together we stand and sing.